Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read to you again these verses. It is the Word of God. We can hardly hear it too many times before I try to explain the last five verses. Beginning at verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe. According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Amen. amen and amen. There is more enlightenment of our understanding. There is more knowledge to gain than what we have before we are baptized, than what we have by the sealing, earnest ministry of the Holy Spirit, even if your pastor was Paul. For three years, there is still more that we want to acquire. As we look at verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened is a metaphorical expression of the light shining brighter in your brain, in your mind, in your heart. But the mind, the understanding that you would know three things that he's going to particularize better than you know them now. We want to know them in their depth, their breadth, their length, their height. We want to see them in their dimensions. We want to see them in the richness of them. We want to see the glory of them. And the Holy Spirit needs to reveal that to us because we are limited and bound up by our fleshly nature that hinders our understanding of spiritual things. But the Lord is able to do this for us. You know, we use the expression of when a light is turned on, The Bible refers to bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. We see it more clearly. Job said over there in Job chapter 42 and 44, when he's answering the Lord, he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of mine ears. Now that's all he had. Because God was speaking to him. I have heard of thee, but now mine eye seeth thee. It meant he had clearer understanding of the spiritual things of God than he did before, though he didn't really see God. He had just comprehended more about God through hearing. And so you're hearing right now. I will not show God to your eyes, but I will show God through your ears to your heart from these words. 
that you can comprehend more than you have in the past. The word comprehend is used in verse 18 of chapter 3. Knowledge is used in verse 19 of chapter 3. The dimensions are in verse 18. Strengthened by the Spirit in your inner man is in verse 16. We want this working of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul wanted for the great church at Ephesus. We want that. We want the Holy Spirit to reveal wisdom and God to us and His Son, Jesus Christ. We just prayed for it. And I'm thankful that we're doing that. What eyes and light are to the body, you need both of them to get around. The understanding and the gospel are to the soul. For your soul to thrive, you need understanding and the gospel presented to it. Then you have this Holy Spirit stirring you up on the inside, opening up your eyes and opening up your ears, and you hear the Word of God preached in the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, right here, and we prosper. And so we want to lay hold of these words, and that's why I read them to you. But we're in the 17th verse. This is Paul's prayer request for this church, that God, and he drops the names of the Son, and he mentions the Spirit, that they would have this Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they would be wiser in the things of God, His person and salvation, because that's what's going to be listed, and revelation in knowing Him. I want each one of you to want more knowledge of God. It's what God wants of us. It's why He created us, that we might know Him. It's why He saved us, that we might know Him. It's what Paul wanted for that church. If God wants this and Paul wants this, we should want it. Who is going to know God the best in this church? Who of our young men will know God and Jesus Christ the best? Who will be like Paul? Who will be like David of the Old Testament? It's all before you. It's a choice. What's important to you? How do you communicate with God? How often do you cry unto Him for Him to reveal Himself to you. Do you know what He says when you are living righteously? I shared this with some at break time. When you are living righteously and seeking Him, when you cry unto Him, He says, Here I am. We want Him to say that to us. But we want to be crying to Him for it. And this is Paul's cry for this church. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. That's why you were saved. You know, we are dull. We're distracted. It's dim. We're dense. We need the eyes of our understanding opened. Light shined. Lord, shine a light into us. You know, in Second Corinthians chapter 4, the comparison is made to God's words in Genesis chapter 1. Let there be light. And there was light. We want Him saying that to each of us. And He has already. Let there be light. And He has shined in our hearts to show the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want more of that. So that is the prayer of our Apostle. Okay, three things. Three what's. There's a what used twice in verse 18 and once in verse 19. Let's start in verse 18. 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know. These are things Paul and the Lord want us to know. That ye may know what is the hope of His calling. The calling is to be a son of God. What is the hope of it? What is held out before us that we can realize in the future? When you hope for something, you don't have it yet. In Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25, or 23 and 24, the apostle explains the use of the word hope, meaning if you're hoping for something, you don't have it yet. And since it's being promised by God, we are simply waiting for it because we know it's coming. It's not this hope. I don't know if this is going to happen or not, but it might. No, it's a patient waiting for the things of the Lord to be revealed to us by the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is called His real revelation, because then you'll see Him with your eyes. And you'll hear Him with your ears as He shouts in descending into the clouds of our atmosphere. The hope of His calling. We're thankful that we have much hope in the gospel. Look at, there's so many verses to look at and I need to, to limit this. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. I want to share some verses about the hope. The hope of His calling is the future expectation of our final salvation in heaven. The hope of our calling as the sons of God is to reveal to us and give us our inheritance in heaven. And then his, his second point is going to be the riches of the glory of it. But uh, right now, the hope of the, His calling. We hear the gospel, and it tells us past things that God has done for us. It tells us present things that we ought to do for God. But it also tells us a whole body of knowledge are the things that God has in store for us. Let me say it again, and I'm sorry, but I want to repeat the verses that fit here. I hath not seen nor ear heard. Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. And that's still out in the future. Or if you're looking at me, here's the past, here's the present, and here's the future. There's a whole body of things stored out there for us. It's the hope of our calling. We're called to be the sons of God. What is in store for us as a son of God? And it's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and its attendant events and eternal heaven to be our home. That's the hope of the calling. Along with glorification of our bodies, deliverance from all the travail and pain, groaning and suffering of this present life, there shall be no more tears, nor sorrow, nor crying there. There shall be no sickness, nor death. The spirits of just men made perfect will describe us, except we'll have glorified bodies to go with them. It's a wonderful state. The universe will be renovated. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. This is the hope of our calling. It's glorious. And the more we know it, I mean, experimentally, by the Spirit within us, causing us to embrace these things, the more we know it, the more it changes lives. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And it goes on to say in verse 3, He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You will change your life to match the life of God. You will acquire holiness and purity to match God's holiness and purity when you are gripped with the fact that this life is a hand's breadth 
that is over quickly, and then you realize the real riches of your inheritance as a son of God. Paul would say so dramatically, if in this life only we have our hope, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Because it's what's coming. And your flesh right now, while you're listening to me, your flesh is ripping at those words. Because your flesh wants to tell you that there's lots of goodies right now. But the goodies right now are garbage compared to then. And we must embrace that. We must believe that. And we must ask the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom to know that future things are far superior to present things. That's the wisdom that He can reveal in that 17th and 18th verses. Lord, help us to that. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 puts it this way. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's called the blessed hope because it is a blessed hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it's called a lively hope. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, it is a hope of life. Do you know what the hope is of all natural men? Do you know what the hope is of all atheists? It's the best that it will ever get for them. Death. What is the hope for a Christian? Life after death. Eternal heaven and the mansions that Jesus Christ said our Father was preparing for us. We're patiently waiting for this. That is our hope. What is the hope of His calling? Remember the thrust of these three things. It's not to go in and explain them right now. The thrust is, do you pray for them? Do you understand the importance of having more knowledge of them? Do you grasp that if you were really gripped by what comes after life, you could do wonderful things in this life? Because it would change you. Remember Stephen gave us a year, our brother Stephen, in the year 2014, gave us every Sunday an example of a martyr. See, the martyrs were real Christians. Do you remember how they died? No one dies like them. Because they knew Christ. And they knew what was coming for them. So a few minutes, or in some cases where green logs were used, or the torture was designed to take time. They died in hours, but they were willing to do it cheerfully. And they cheerfully forgave their tormentors because they had a hope of eternal life. And they knew that though it hurt for the moment, the Lord was gracious to them and He would be gracious to you. In the same time, they knew that it was nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Paul would say, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, should not really be compared to the eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight, light moment, doesn't match. So, the more we know about the hope of the calling. Now, this hope of the calling cannot just be done by a whole lot of preaching about heaven. The hope of the calling has to have the power of the Holy Spirit inside you stirred up to cause you to give you the victory over your flesh that wants you to only think about the things of this life. Nobody in here gets, gets any more excited than I do about you having success in this life. I get very excited about those things. I, I'm glad when they happen to you. 
I, I, I love victories. Even, in the, even down here, in advancing and progressing and business successes and financial growth and, you know, bigger houses and families and, you know, just these carnal and natural things. I do enjoy seeing you prosper in them. And I know the feeling it gives of excitement and success. But Lord, Lord, show us by your Spirit to love those things that are coming which are so far greater they ought not to be compared. That we will embrace them and let them put in the shade all the things of this life. Paul is praying that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would enlighten the eyes of their understanding that they would first of all know what is the hope of his calling. What is the hope of being a Christian? It is passing the bar exam. Do you know that a bar exam is coming up? We will all stand at the bar of God's judgment and we will give an account and we will pass because our names will be found in the Lamb's book of life. And it starts from there and just goes on into eternal glory of the things that I've mentioned. It's the hope of our calling. Our calling is not just to come to church and deny ourselves through the week until we meet again next Lord's Day. We would be miserable men. There is something later. And we are thankful for the abundance of all things in America that we have in combination above anyone else. We have more things than anyone else has ever had. And so it's easy for us to get enticed by this life. I'll tell you, if you were an abused slave, or if you were in prison for things you had not done, or things you had done that you had repented of while you were there, you know, the hope of His calling would be more meaningful to you. Because it wouldn't have so much to compete with. The hope of our Father's calling has a lot to compete with in our lives. Remember the little Bible expression, when Jeshu run waxed fat, then he kicked. Second thing the Lord wants us to know, and Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to know, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The answer to the question, if it's a question, the incredible wealth and happiness that God has in store, that passage over there in 1 Corinthians 2 that I hasn't seen, and so forth. Matthew chapter 25, will, Jesus will tell the righteous at his right hand that inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you it wasn't so. I would have told you. 2 Corinthians 4.17, the eternal weight of glory. Note the words of this clause in the middle of verse 8, at the end of verse 18. What the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. This is what God gives His saints, that we would know the riches of the glory of it. It's incredible beyond description. This world is a sin-cursed world. You live in a sin-cursed world, but when you go out on a beautiful sunny day 
and the Lord embraces you along with the wicked with that wonderful sunshine, and you look and smell at a flower or whatever the case might be that, that, in, that moves you the most, it's nothing compared to what's in store. Nothing. Note the words that are in this clause at the end of verse 18. Your inheritance as a saint has a glory so rich only God can teach it to you. That's the problem. I can't teach it to you. We've got to read these words. And if the, if God the Holy Spirit inspires words like riches, glory, I hath not seen, eternal weight, mansions, there is no need for a son there. The Lamb is the light thereof. In all the expressions in the Bible, then you can count on them in a degree that you cannot, should not count on any earthly writings. Because God said it. And what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. It's His inheritance God's not inheriting. It's His inheritance that He's bestowing. It's His inheritance because He's giving it to us. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs. House and riches are the inheritance of fathers. Does that mean that fathers inherit houses and riches? No. It's that fathers give or bestow inheritances of houses and riches. House and riches are the inheritance of fathers. Who inspired those words by the pen of Solomon? God did. So God knows that a good father should give his son a house and riches. Did God inspire that? Are we the sons of God? Does he have a house for us? In my father's house are many mansions. Does he have riches for us? Well, yes, pastor, it's in the verse right in front of us. Yes, it is. That you would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance that he has for us. That we would think about the fact that everything, the success that you love, the glory of a victory, the pleasure of a promotion, kind things said to you or about you, will all be transcended in the presence of God. Everything that you can think of will be transcended and trumped by the riches of the glory of our inheritance that we get from God. And we need the Holy Spirit to cause us to embrace it and to live in the light of that than the soap bubbles we get here. And I'm admitting freely to you all that I love those soap bubbles as much as anyone. And I don't mean real soap bubbles, and I don't mean games, and I don't mean toys, and I don't mean cars. Uh Uh-uh. Business success. And all you young men that I love so dearly, who will bury me, and who will take over this church, I know all about that success. I know about thinking and planning your your career progression and wanting to push it and accelerate it and press it 
as fast as you can. And as you meet goals along the way, they excite you. But don't let them steal your heart. Don't let them steal your mind. They're nothing in comparison to live for Him and to receive the the riches of the glory of His inheritance. And even before we get there, He can say to you, Here I am. He can reveal Himself to you. You can walk with Him. You can delight in Him. He's more delightful than any other person you'll meet. I know the warfare. I know the conflict. I wish I could go back and start over as a 10-year-old. All those single-digit years can be flushed. I don't care. But let me start over again as a teenager. Let me feel the competition. And let me only set my affection and sights on a race that is out of the sight of the rest of the world, and that is to win the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul had a race. And Paul, Paul was as competitive as any man. When we read his words in 1 Corinthians 9, they that run in a race, run all. But one wins the prize. Absolutely. Second place is losing. I smell, but I won't use it in a sermon, brother. They wouldn't understand it, but you know. And we used to share them. But oh, this is a better thing to share. The hope of his calling. You know, we're so worn down right now that I don't know what I could ever do. All you young men, I know you're going to school to get a transferable skill to go out and turn a buck, buy a house, get a bigger house, drive a nice car, everybody look at your shiny wheels, get a bigger check, get a bigger check, more money in the bank, I want to be a millionaire before I'm 30, I want to do this, I want to do that, and you're just, oh, you just want to compete, and all those You know, God made men to want to compete. Mm -hmm. But they that will be rich fall into many foolish snares and hurtful lusts that destroy men in in destruction and perdition. The love of money is the root of all evil. This is riches. This is riches. The riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Don't you want to stand before Him confidently? Forget a gold watch. Forget a promotion to vice president. Forget a promotion to executive vice president. Forget any of those things. Well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Have reign over many cities. Oh, that's a sound. And on the way there, you're not suffering You're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ like Paul did. Who's the happiest person in the New Testament? After Jesus. Paul was. You say, but Paul didn't have anything. Oh, yes, he did. He had the riches of the glory of the inheritance of eternal life. And he knew it. Let us have those things. Jesus knew this so well. For those of you that turned to Psalm 16 last evening, Jesus understood all this. Look, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. Will all you young men do this? I have set the Lord always before me. He is my goal. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord, Jehovah, L-O-R-D caps, always before me, because he is at my right hand, 
the place where you can reach the fastest, I shall not be moved. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad. What is the source of real gladness? Setting the Lord before your face. No one, no thing, no promotion, no accomplishments, no success can match the Lord before your face. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. That is His tongue. My tongue speaks happy and joyful things. My flesh also shall rest in hope. I can lose my life and you can bury me. But my flesh, my body, is going to just be resting down there in that coffin, in that vault, in hope of the resurrection. And His was there only three days and three nights. This is prophecy of the Lord Jesus, quoted by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. So we know that. I'm not a genius. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, quoted by Peter, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. So he had a hope. He had hope. He had hope of his calling. And the hope of his calling was what God was going to give him when he was in God's presence. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is the riches of the glory of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Fullness of joy. Nothing in this world will ever give you full joy. It will always come short. And the more melancholy you are, the more you will shorten up that joy. You will not enjoy the things that you thought were going to give you joy. But this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quoted in the New Testament. The Bible tells us, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame over there in Hebrews chapter 12. So this is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. It's our pleasure, it's our duty, it's our privilege to comfort one another with these things. Look at, just back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15. I remember being taught first uh, Psalm 16, the last few verses about the Lord Jesus Christ as a child. I didn't understand them. I didn't appreciate them. I didn't know the love of Christ that my father and mother had. So Psalm 16 was kind of boring in comparison to other Psalms. But once the Holy Spirit is inside and is sharing wisdom and revelation about God and about the Lord Jesus Christ, Psalm 16 takes on a whole different character. And I love that Psalm 16 and those last verses that describe what was before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was able to go to the cross. His heart was glad. His heart was glad. His glory was rejoicing because he knew all that God had in store for him. And we, by learning the same thing of all that God has in store for us, it should affect us presently as it affected him while he was on earth trusting in his father. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I don't know if it's still true or not, but since I just mentioned my parents, I'll mention my father again. If I remember correctly, this is one of his top five verses, if not his favorite verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
if it's verse 58, how many verses have gone before it? 57. What are all 57 verses about in this chapter? The resurrection. Is this the chapter that says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable? Yes, it's verse 19. So this chapter is telling us that the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection because He was the first fruits of them that slept. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, He's going to get the dead Christians first, right? Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. So it's all about resurrection and the hope of something beyond this life that gives meaning and value to Christianity. Therefore, because of 57 verses about the resurrection and what's coming next, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why isn't it in vain? Because there is a hope for us of something better. There is a rich and glorious inheritance of the Father to be given to us. Therefore, our time here, we should not get discouraged. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Paul is appealing to this church. He used 57 verses to lay the foundation. And here is the crowning point of conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. Don't change. Unmovable. Always abounding. Not barely serving the Lord. Not just doing a few things once in a while. But always abounding in the work of the Lord. And those are the parents God gave me. They were always abounding. In everything they could do to serve others for the cause of Jesus Christ. In the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is why Paul prayed that the Ephesian church would get the spirit of wisdom and revelation to know the hope of their calling and the riches the riches and the glory of their inheritance because it would make great church members out of them. It would make great Christians out of them. They would always be abounding in the work of the Lord. They would always be happy because they would have set the Lord always before their face. Are you able to tie these things together with my feeble efforts? Ephesians chapter 1. These two things, your hope and future inheritance, need more revelation from God for us to fully grasp them and appreciate them and live by them. All natural men, intelligent or idiots, have all hope and advantage disappear at the moment of death. And the Bible is filled with this warning. Just listen to some verses. And I'll read them to you. A few. This is the difference between Christianity and every other ism or faith or thought or philosophy. Job chapter 8. You don't need to turn. I'll just, I'm going to read several quickly. Job 8.13. So are the paths of all that forget God. And the hypocrites hope shall perish. Some of these idiots want to freeze dry themselves so that they can come back when there's a cure. You know, there's no level, there's no depth of their insanity. Job 11 and verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall see not escape, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. 
Their hope is going to be just like the ghost going out of a person, which totally destroys the hope of that person and their ambitions. Job 18.17 His remembrance shall perish from the earth, and he shall have no name in the street. Totally forgotten. When you go out of this world. You know, that's the book of Job, and I have more there. But we come over to the book of Psalms, and go to Psalm 37 and verse 20. And it says, The wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke. Shall they consume? Away. The wicked just turn into smoke, and it's blown away. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 28. The hope of the righteous shall be gladness. When a righteous man has hope, based on the Bible, he has gladness because he's going to realize his hope. But the expectation of the wicked shall perish. Oh, I love these warnings. Lord, teach these things to us deeply, permanently. 11.7, when a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish. And the hope of unjust men perisheth. Examples from the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Describing that when a wicked man perishes, everything goes away. His hope goes away. When we get to die, what happens? We get our inheritance. We can't have it till then. We just get an earnest of it. And I hope that you read the updates that I sent out this week, that I had some mathematically inclined brothers come to me last Sunday and say, does, does, does it mean that the ministry of the Holy Spirit now in our lives should be divided by .03 to arrive at what heaven must be like? Now, I like a mathematical mind, but that's just a little excessive but I enjoyed you saying that to me because I had said the earnest of a real estate transaction in this county at the present time is 3%, which is 0.03. So for you to know the value of a house and you, but, and you know the value of the earnest, you know, you can just divide it up by 0.03 to find, okay? So if we take, you know, it gets pretty good in here some Sundays. Just hearing the Word of God, right. rejoicing with each other, having the Lord's Supper, and, and you're, you're singing... A brother in this church, in the back row, and I'm sorry that the presenter of the psalm had to leave this assembly, but I hope that it will be communicated to him. A brother in the back row of this assembly was converted today on what his favorite psalm was. It was moved from number 1 to number 107. And then someone had the audacity to call for the singing of Amazing Grace. The brother couldn't sing a word of it because he was messed up badly. Isn't that wonderful? He was messed up badly. And at break time, he was saying to me, Oh, if you could just grab that, bottle it, and keep it. But you know our flesh is continually pulling us down. But do you know why I'm bringing all that up? Take that and divide it by .03. Heaven's going to be glorious because he's shared enough with us now when, when Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable, sometimes worshiping even in this life and the streets are not... It's that song again that I forget every... Uh, Matthew, go for it. The hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. The Lord blesses us now. But it's going to be so much better 
later. Paul wanted them to know these things. The third thing, and uh, let, let's just summarize a little bit. There, it's verses 19 through 23. The third thing. Do you, if they have those what's under uh, circled or something, you know what the prayer requests were for Paul. You know, we, let's, let's try to change the way we pray. Let's try to change our prayer requests from carnal things to spiritual things. These three prayer requests are that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us more about the hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of our inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of the power of God that's been exerted toward us. If you get those together, it's a nice combination. If I, if I think about the hope of his calling and I look through the Bible and see all the things about the coming of Jesus Christ and the glorious victory and heaven and a new heaven and a new earth and passing the judgment at the, at the bar of God Almighty, all those things and no pain, no sorrow, no sickness, no crying. And then I think about the riches of the glory of his inheritance. How rich is God? How rich is my father? What could he bequeath to me in his last will and testament? When I think of all those things, I start to get overwhelmed and say something is going to keep me from it. Because my experience in this life has been, whenever there has been great hope, I've usually been disappointed. You will not be disappointed this time because God has given His Son at His right hand to the church. God has given Jesus to us. It's in verse 22. And hath put all things under His feet and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church. Jesus is in charge of everything to bring everything to pass that is promised to us. Verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? God has exerted power toward us that believe the gospel, and that is the power of regeneration, because He has raised us from death in trespasses and sins to life in Christ. And then it goes on in verse 19 to say, according to the working of His mighty power. And he's going to give an example of that mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 20 of chapter 1 should be compared to verse 1 of chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Because verse 1 of chapter 2 has us dead and being brought to life under the word quickened. Verses 5 and 6 say, we were dead, we've been quickened together with Christ, and we've been raised up together and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, when you go over and read verse 20 of chapter 1, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. God took Jesus from death to life to the heavenly places. He takes us from death in sins, spiritually, to life in Christ, to heavenly places. And if you'll see that comparison, it that chapter division wasn't there. That chapter division wasn't there until sometime, I don't remember because it's not important to me to remember this one, sometime between 1200 and 1500. No, there weren't chapter divisions in the epistle to the Ephesians. Paul didn't write chapter 1, take a couple days off, and then write chapter 2. He, it was run on material. 
And so they, these are connected. And God raised Jesus from the dead, and God has raised us from the dead. God raised Jesus all the way up to the right hand of His throne, and He's going to raise us up to be there with Jesus in His throne. And it's just the, the beauty of this to see the comparison. But in, in conclusion for today, we want to look at this third thing just momentarily before I finish. What is the greatness? There's three what's. Paul wants us to know on this third point, what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? The first thing we ought to think of is how much power had to be put forth to change us to love being in this assembly and wanting to hear about this Lord Jesus Christ. It took that, it took the exceeding greatness of God's power. And an example of that power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's called His mighty power. Exceeding greatness of His power. When something is called exceedingly great or exceeding greatness, that means there is no other power like it. That means there's nothing that can hinder it. Nothing can resist it. Because it is exceeding. That means it is greater. Exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe. And look at the demonstration and example of it in verse 20, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. I know that's long, but I still didn't finish the sentence. But when you listen to all those words, do you want, do you, do you want to hear some names? Lucifer. Satan, the devil, Michael, Gabriel, Nero, Pope Innocent III of the Spanish Inquisition of 1120. Names. He is far above them all. The Lord Jesus Christ. He was ghastly gray. Cold clay in Joseph of Arimathea's sepulcher. But the exceeding greatness of God's power, according to His mighty power, was exerted when the God the Holy Spirit said, Live! And the Spirit of Jesus of Nazareth came down from heaven and rejoined His body. There was an earthquake. Dead saints came for a quick visit in Jerusalem. The Roman guards were paralyzed. The stone was rolled away. Jesus came forth. Children, have you caught any fish? None. Throw your nets on the other side. Or let them down again. I may have my two fish. Histories. Confused, it doesn't matter. I like them both. Let your nets down again. Lord, they, they didn't know the Lord in this one yet. So they let their nets down again and they cast them on their side. Forgive my uh, obvious feebleness. So they let their nets down again. And when they tried to pull the nets up this time, two ships had to come together to try to hold that net. And, it, and both began to sink. They had to get to shore, and they counted out 153 large fish. Then they knew who it was. 
he had lots of power. You know, and he could make himself a fire and make them some fish fillets to eat on that particular occasion. Then he levitated himself into heaven. He stood before them and blessed them in Acts chapter 1 and rose up into heaven and all the apostles watched him go up into the clouds. And the angels came and said, Men of Galilee, what are you doing looking up in the clouds? This same Jesus which is taken up from you shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him depart. This is the hope of his calling. Jesus is coming back for us. And this is the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance of what he's going to bestow on us for through Jesus, the death of the testator and the, and the uh, exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. There's so much power to take Jesus of Nazareth. Satan in the Garden of Eden only had to work for a couple of minutes to take care of our first two parents who were highly intelligent, can name all the animals. There was no sin in the world. They were able to commune with God daily. And uh, he was able to take care of them in a couple of minutes and they were sinners and under the curse of death. The Lord Jesus Christ blew off the chains of death that held him, tore open the tomb, the, the bars of his tomb, and rose up into heaven and sat down at God's right hand far above that same devil. Right. That devil that took our first parents down, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, took him down. And it doesn't just say he took him down. 1 John 3, 8 says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us that he took on him the nature of Abraham, and his seed, rather than the nature of angels, to destroy him that had the power of death. And there are people who live their whole lifetimes in bondage through the fear of death, and Jesus has rendered all of that moot and ridiculous because he's defeated death by his resurrection from the dead, and now he's at the right hand of God. And not only does he say he defeated the devil, it says in Colossians chapter 2 that he made an open show of him, triumphing over him in his death on the cross. He made an open show of the devil. The Bible describes the devil as the strong man who held us in his palace and we were captive there. And he didn't really need to work that hard to keep us captive because we were willing. We were willing inhabitants of his palace. But then a stronger man came and took away those goods and spoiled that strong man's possessions, meaning Jesus Christ came and spoiled the devil and his claim upon us by delivering us from him. Jesus has all power in heaven and earth. Those were his last words to his apostles. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, teach all nations. That's what we have here, in brief. Far above all angels, all might, all power, all dominion, every name. Spiritual realities of force, position, power, and authority, and earthly. Every time you can think of. Good angels, bad angels. Good men, bad men. Enemies, it doesn't matter what it is. Jesus Christ is far above them all. But principally, the spiritual realm of principalities and powers. Jesus Christ is over them. And God has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Meaning to you and to me, Jesus Christ is in charge of everything. Which is his body. That is, the whole elect family of God is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus Christ fills heaven and earth in his divine nature. Jesus Christ provides every need that you ever have. He fills all, and we are the fullness of him. Without us, he is incomplete. He is a public person. God sent him to be the mediator of his people, the head and surety of his people. He is intimately tied by everlasting covenant 
to His people so that they are inseparable. They are bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He is the head of the body. He is the spirit of the body. And you cannot separate those things. We are tied up with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. And God has put Him on His throne for the benefit of the church because it's to the church that He's done this and given us this great gift and the exceeding greatness of the power that was put forth to do that to Jesus Christ that was a ghastly gray corpse in the sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea is now on the throne of heaven at God's right hand and He shall save us with an everlasting salvation. And Paul said there's three things you need to know. And I'm praying for you Ephesians Since I've heard you've got the basics under control, I am praying that you will grow in your understanding of the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of your inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of the power that has been put forth on your behalf in raising Jesus from the dead and in regenerating each of us. Because we've been raised from the dead as well. Because we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were walking according to the course of this world. We love the world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were willing obedience, willing, willing and obedient servants and slaves and helpers to the devil himself, fulfilling all the lusts of our mind and of our flesh. We're by nature the children of wrath. The children of wrath does not mean people on earth that get mad. The children of wrath means the section of humanity that is going to know the wrath of God for eternity. Right. We were just like the reprobates the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, quickened us, just like Jesus Christ was quickened. You know what it says in 1 Peter 3.18? That Jesus Christ was quickened by the Spirit. Those were both operations. The first one done to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's right at the right hand of God waiting for us for the benefit of the church, and we shall be quickened. We have been quickened already, and our corruptible bodies, our mortal bodies will be quickened and raised with the Lord as well. These are wonderful things. They should change our lives. Lord, help them to change our lives. Do you know why God loves you? According to Ephesians chapter 2, it's because of His mercy. This was very meaningful to me in the last, this is my final point. But God, verse 4 of chapter 2, but God, Opposite our character in verses 1 through 3. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. It took the mercy of God to love us, because to love us was a choice of his. There's nothing in us lovable, and there's nothing in him requiring him to love us. In his mercy, he chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began and set his love upon us. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. It was a choice for him to choose the whole plan of salvation. It's called his wisdom and his prudence in chapter 1. But we need the Holy Spirit to fully appreciate what he's done for us. And I hope that you can see the beauty, the power, the depth, the length, the glory of Ephesians chapter 1. And that you'll love the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that you'll love the Lord Jesus Christ and pray for his spirit in you and in our church. That we'll know these things even more. Amen. Amen.